You may have heard the story about the boy who cried wolf. He was a shepherd boy. He got bored just sitting around watching the village sheep. So he decided to liven things up a bit. He started shouting, wolf, wolf. There's a wolf attacking the sheep. Within seconds, people came running out of the village and up the hill to help him chase away the wolf. But of course, there was no wolf. The next day, he had enjoyed the first uh, day so much, he gave it another go. Wolf, wolf. And again, they come sprinting out of the village, only to find, again, no wolf. Eventually, they just stopped listening to him. Many people think Christians are like the boy who cried wolf. We speak about Jesus coming back, holding men and women to account before sending them to an eternal destiny in heaven or hell, where they will experience either perfect blessing or unimaginable punishment. But Christians have been saying that for over 2,000 years. And so to a lot of people, speaking about Judgment Day sounds like crying wolf. People think, maybe if I'd been around in the time of Jesus, in the early days of the church, maybe I'd have taken the idea seriously. But after 2,000 years, I think I can safely forget about it. And so now the term Judgment Day gets used to hype up boxing matches or rugby games. It appears on billboards in Las Vegas or posters at the National Stadium in Cardiff. And when that sort of thing begins to happen, it's a sure sign people don't feel concerned about an actual judgment day where they meet a holy God face to face. But it might surprise us to realize this is exactly what the Bible predicted The Apostle Paul wrote this to the early Christians in Thessalonica. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The Bible refuses to give us a time and date for Jesus' return. It simply tells us it will happen and we need to be ready. The Bible also gives us several examples to show us God really does keep his word. When he warns us about something, we dare not ignore the warning. And this morning as we turn to the book of Jeremiah... We come to a moment in history where God kept his word. We're in Jeremiah chapter 39, and you'll find that in the Green Church Bibles on page 802, and in the larger print Bibles, 1244. Jeremiah 39, and we're going to read from chapter 39, verse 1, through to chapter 40, verse 6. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sharezer of Samgar, Nebu Sarskim, a chief officer, Nego Sharezer, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed towards the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing. And at that time, he gave them vineyards and fields. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the chief officer, Nergal Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They handed him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am about to fulfill my words against this city, words concerning disaster, not prosperity. At At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be given into the hands of those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life. Because you trust in me, declares the Lord. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile to Babylon. When the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, The Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place. And now... The Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. But today, I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon if you like, and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't come. Look, 
The whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people. Or go anywhere else you please. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. This is God's word. And to understand the significance of it, we need to remember something that happened several decades before this. When Jeremiah was still a very young man. God commissioned him to be a prophet, to deliver God's message to the people of Judah. And as part of that commissioning, Jeremiah told us, the Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. So from the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, he had a message that trouble was brewing for the people of Judah. They think everything's fine. But if they don't turn from their sin, God is going to unleash judgment. And he'll do it through enemies who will arrive from the north. Here's another example of the message Jeremiah was given. People of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvests and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your vines and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. Now, as solemn as that picture is, it did not have the effect it should have had. It didn't sober the people up. It didn't cause them to turn back to God. And there were two reasons for that. First of all, when Jeremiah began to deliver the message, there was no enemy from the north. There was no one who would attack Israel from that direction. And the second reason people didn't take the message seriously was because of their confidence God would never take such a drastic step. Didn't God give us this land in the first place? Didn't he put his temple here in Jerusalem? He'd never undo all of that. And so Jeremiah kept delivering the message, warning the people to turn back to God before judgment came, and they just didn't take him seriously. And no doubt every year that went by without an enemy attacking from the north, Jeremiah sounded more and more like the boy who cried wolf. And even when the Babylonians became a world superpower, the people of Judah just couldn't believe God would let them take 
Jerusalem. But they did take Jerusalem. In 587 BC, during the reign of King Zedekiah of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar and his massive army marched down from the north. Now, although Babylon is to the east of Israel, no one ever tried to march directly through the desert. That was the shortest route, but it would have meant going weeks without water. So instead, they followed the Euphrates River north and then came south to put Jerusalem under siege. And after many months of siege, chapter 39, verse 2, tells us what happened. On the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sherezer of Samgar, Nebo Sarskim, a chief officer, Nergal Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. Historians tell us there were various strategies armies would use for getting into well-defended cities. One tactic was to try and dig underneath the walls. Another tactic was to patiently pick stones out of the walls until eventually they collapsed. It may have been a combination of those things that got the Babylonians inside Jerusalem. And no doubt there was chaos in the city when that initial breach was made. But notice what the high-ranking officials do. They have chairs brought to the gate of the city and they sit on them. What was the point of that? Well, the people who sat in the city gate were the rulers of the city. That was the place of authority. And the first thing the Babylonian leaders do is show the whole city, we're the ones in charge now. And as they do that, they are fulfilling the word God had given Jeremiah decades before this. That rulers from the north would come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. You'll notice verse 3 also lists uh, some names of these rulers. And they sound like none of the names we've heard previously in the book. We haven't met any Nergals or Nebos among the people of Judah. These men are the conquerors of Judah. And as their names are listed, another word of God is being fulfilled. Remember, God warned the fortified cities of Judah would be overcome by a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. For most of his adult life, Jeremiah has been dismissed as the boy who cried wolf. But now he's been proven right. He wasn't just telling scary stories to amuse himself. There really was danger. For decades he warned about a judgment day no one believed would ever take place. But now, judgment day arrives. It's a defining day for everyone in Judah. For some, it's a day of darkness. Last week, we got a close look at King Zedekiah of Judah. We learned quite a bit about his character, and we summed him up as a marshmallow. He was a man who went whatever way he was pushed. 
He did and said whatever would seem to fit his circumstances at the time. He'd actually been put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar when the Babylonians had made a previous visit to Jerusalem. Zedekiah swore an oath that he would serve Nebuchadnezzar. But when the Babylonians left and his advisors pushed him to rebel and rely on help from Egypt, Zedekiah went along with that. And his attitude to God's word was that he was intrigued by it and he wanted to hear it, but he was never willing to obey it. He kept sending for Jeremiah, but he would never commit to what the prophet told him. And now judgment day has finally come and it's too late for Zedekiah to make any meaningful decision. Look what happens in verse 4. We've just heard about the walls being breached and the Babylonians taking seats in the gate. And verse 4 says, When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and headed towards the Arabah. That's a wilderness area to the east of Jerusalem. They may have been hoping to hide in caves there. But, verse 5 says, when the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, they captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. In the past, Zedekiah had called for Jeremiah and then sent him away. He had asked Jeremiah to pray and give him God's word, and then he ignored it. Zedekiah hoped that somehow, against all the odds, the judgment day God promised was never really going to come. And when it did come, he tried to slip out of the garden gate and outrun the massed armies of the world's greatest superpower. He and his men are caught about 15 miles away. They're taken to Nebuchadnezzar's field headquarters some distance from Jerusalem. And we might wonder, why is the punishment so severe? But actually, this was normal stuff for the Babylonians. This is what they did. And besides, Zedekiah had sworn an oath to them and then gone back on his oath. And he'd wasted their time and resources by resisting their siege for 18 months. It's really no surprise they're so brutal with him. In verse 6, the word slaughtered is used to describe what happened to the king's sons. That's a word normally used for butchering animals. So it's best, it's for the best, that we don't have pictures of what happened to the king's sons. But in any case, Zedekiah is forced to see it. It's done before his eyes. And that is the last thing he sees. Ever. His eyes are then put out. Can you imagine the kind of darkness 
that must have come over Zedekiah. Not just a physical lack of sight, but darkness of utter despair. Can you imagine the state of his mind and his heart as he marched in chains to Babylon? A long, slow march replaying in his mind the very last thing he saw. He'd hoped Judgment Day would never come. But not only did it come, it turned out to be far worse than he could have imagined. And the tragedy is, it could have been so different. Just weeks before this, God promised he could be spared if only he would listen to God and obey. As we read on in the Bible, we discover this judgment day in Jerusalem is just a faint foreshadowing of the final judgment day. Earlier this morning, we heard Jesus describe that day. It will be a day of darkness when those who refuse to respond to God's word are led away, not to Babylon, but to eternal punishment. And that will be far worse than any of us can imagine. But that will not be all that happens on Judgment Day. Because Jesus explained, while it will be a day of darkness for some, for others it will be a day of freedom. That is also foreshadowed here in our passage. We've heard about the day the invaders broke through the walls of Jerusalem. The battle was over at that stage. But the aftermath would have lasted for weeks. We're told the Babylonians burned the city systematically and they flattened the walls systematically. The rubble will be a sign of what happens when anybody messes with Babylon. But Judah has now become a province of the Babylonian Empire. And they don't want it turning into a total wasteland. So while they round up the more well-to-do members of society to follow Zedekiah into exile, they leave some of the very poorest people behind to keep some kind of order in the place. And in the midst of that, look what happens to Jeremiah. Remember, during the siege, he's been shifted around various prisons in the city from the not-too-bad courtyard of the guard to the as-bad-as-it-gets cistern full of mud. At the end of chapter 38, he was back in the courtyard of the guard. But here, verse 11 tells us what happened to him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, a chief officer, Nergal Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They handed him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. As we read that, our first question might be, how does Nebuchadnezzar know about Jeremiah? And the second question is, why does he care? Why treat him so well? 
Well, remember, during the siege, Jeremiah was encouraging the people of Jerusalem to surrender to the Babylonians. And we know some of them did. No doubt Nebuchadnezzar has learned from them what Jeremiah has been saying. And he's probably also learned about Jeremiah's long-term message that God would bring his judgment through an enemy from the north. We know the Babylonians were superstitious. They would have wanted to keep on the good side of a prophet who could foresee that kind of stuff. So while the Babylonians are finishing their work in Jerusalem, Jeremiah is set free and put in the care of a man called Gedaliah. We'll hear more about him in a moment. But the point to notice here is that God has kept the promise he made to Jeremiah when he first called him. Back in chapter 1, he said to this young man, I am with you and will rescue you. That did not mean life was going to be easy for Jeremiah because God made that clear in chapter 1 as well. He said, the people of Judah will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you. And we've seen in this book, Jeremiah's rescue comes at the end of a whole lot of trouble and persecution. He was hated and mistreated because of his faithfulness to God. Because he refused to go quiet about God's message. But now, as judgment day finally comes, Jeremiah is liberated. It's not a day of darkness for him. It's a day of vindication. And that is also the case for a man called Ebed-Melech. We met him last week. He's a Cushite. That means he's from either Sudan or Ethiopia, as we would know them. Which also means he is a slave in Jerusalem. He's not there by choice. But when Jeremiah was sinking in the mud put in an underground cistern by his own people to rot. It was Ebed-Melech who got Jeremiah out of there. And here in verse 15 of chapter 39, we have a little flashback to a promise God made at that time. After this foreigner had hauled Jeremiah out of the mud, verse 15 tells us, while Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Abed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am about to fulfill my words against this city, words concerning disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be given into the hands of those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life. Because you trust in me, declares the Lord. God promises this African slave he will have his freedom. The promise is mentioned here to confirm that he was freed. This judgment day was a good day for Ebed-Melech. But it's worth noticing why God delivered him. We might expect God to say, you'll be saved because you did my servant Jeremiah a good turn. So I owe you one. Or we might expect God to say, I'm rewarding you for your compassion and your courage. We might have expected God to say something like that, but look what he actually says at the end of verse 18. 
You will escape with your life because you trust in me. So yes, Ebed-Melech did Jeremiah a good turn. He did show compassion and courage. But God puts his finger on what motivated all that. It was Ebed-Melech's trust in God. He wasn't an Israelite, but he put his faith in the God of Israel. And he was saved on Judgment Day. He was surrounded by people who trusted their own wisdom and strength. They could see themselves through the trouble they thought. But this slave put his trust in God and he found freedom. While all of the self-reliant people did not. The rest of the Bible tells us when the final judgment day comes, it's people like Ebed-Melech who will have nothing to fear. For them, it will be a day of liberation from sin and death and pain. Not because they earned liberation, not because God owes them, but because they put their faith in God. They trusted him instead of trusting their own achievements. And they were saved. And since the first Christmas, when God the Son came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, since that day, trusting in God means trusting in his Son, Jesus. The one who gave his life to save us from the eternal death we deserve. The Bible calls Jesus the Lamb who was slain for our salvation. And the last book of the Bible pictures the scene around God's throne. It describes a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Judgment Day will be a day of joy. Not just for people from one nation, but from all nations. All those who accept that salvation belongs to God. It's His gift to give. It's not a reward we earn by our efforts. It's a gracious gift from God, and He gives it to all those who trust in His Son. So none of us here today need experience Judgment Day as a day of darkness. If we take God at his word, Judgment Day will lead to the greatest freedom, life and deliverance beyond our wildest dreams. The experience of Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech are little signposts to that truth. They're here for you and me to learn from. And the reason we can still learn from them is because the judgment day we've seen in Jeremiah 39 was not the final judgment day. That is still ahead of us. And if we're not ready for it, we can get ready today. We don't know about tomorrow. None of us do. But we have this opportunity to respond to God's word. 
And if we are ready, then we have work to do. We have good news to share with people. That's what Jeremiah discovered. He's just lived through Judah's judgment day, but in Judah, life goes on. Jerusalem is in ruins, but there's still work to do. In chapter 39, we were told about Nebuchadnezzar's order to look after Jeremiah. The man carrying out that order was Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, and we're told he put Jeremiah in the care of Gedaliah. He left him among the people staying around Jerusalem. But what seems to have happened after that is that in the disorder that followed the destruction of the city, Jeremiah was rounded up by some other Babylonian officer, someone who didn't get the memo about Jeremiah, who then chained him and herded him out to Ramah. We learned about Ramah earlier in the book. It was the deportation center. Prisoners were sent from there to march into exile. Jeremiah ends up there contrary to what Nebuchadnezzar had commanded. And the beginning of chapter 40 tells us he's spotted at Ramah by Nebuzaradan, who had released him earlier. And in chapter 40, verse 4, Nebuzaradan says to him, Today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon if you like, and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people. Or go anywhere else you please. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. Jeremiah is free to go wherever he pleases. If he does go to Babylon, it will not be in chains like the others. He has royal protection. But he chooses to remain among the people who have been left behind. Remember, these are the very poorest of the people. The people who owned nothing, chapter 39 told us. So there's no glory in the work Jeremiah is staying behind to do. The place is a heap of rubble. And the people are a lawless rabble. We'll see that next time. The Babylonians have put this man Gedaliah in charge. We'll hear more about him next time as well. But the key point for now is that Jeremiah does not say, Finally, I've been proved right. After years of being jeered at and plotted against, even beaten and thrown into mud pits, finally somebody appreciates me. Now I can retire and sit by the pool in Babylon with a glass of champagne. It really does seem Jeremiah could have had that life if he wanted it. We've seen how Nebuchadnezzar treats him like a kind of lucky mascot. Jeremiah could have retired to comfort, but he stays in the ruins among the people who were left behind. 
He looks at the shambles of a place with hardly any community to speak of and he decides, this is a place for me. I can serve God here in the ruins. Maybe this is all the more remarkable because we saw last week, Jeremiah is not a man who loves hardship. He is not the Bear Grylls type. We saw last week in a moment of weakness during the siege, Jeremiah lied to avoid going back to a dungeon. Tough situations do not excite Jeremiah. But he's a servant of God. And in these ruins, there is service he can do for God. So he doesn't check out. He stays. And in that sense, Jeremiah is a role model for you and me. Until the final judgment day, God's people have work to do. We live in a world full of the rubble and the ruins caused by sin. Broken relationships are all around us. Broken systems of care. Broken ideas about why we're all here in the first place. Broken ambitions and goals in daily life. Broken understanding about what happens when this life is over. Rubble and ruins caused by sin. And you and I are called to serve God in the middle of it. Doing good to all. Warning about God's judgment. Sharing the good news of salvation in Christ. We're all tempted to keep quiet. Of course we are. We're tempted to retreat and just let the world carry on its way, stumbling about in the ruins of sin. It is tempting for us just to write the whole thing off as a lost cause. What could we do anyway? But we are called to service. Until the day Jesus comes back, He wants us to be active and involved in this world of his. And it is his world. He wants us not to give up on it and not to give up on the people in it. So let's rejoice in God's salvation. Let's rejoice as men and women who are forgiven and set free from any fear of judgment because of Christ. Let's rejoice in that. And let's live for God's glory in these ruins all around us. Will you commit to doing that? Our last song helps us to renew our commitment together as we sing, Lord of our dawning, who brought us to birth.